Today is part six of our First Peter series, and I entitled today's message, A Life Worth Living. And I want to begin with a concept this morning, which is this, value in life is determined by whether we are valuable to the Lord, not whether we're valuable to mankind. It is not whether or not you're valuable to your family. It is not whether you're valuable to your job or even to yourself. Your value in this life is dictated ultimately and completely by the value that you bring to God's kingdom. Now, the reason for me mentioning that is I think that for most of us, certainly myself, we have these backwards and a little mixed up. Because for us, and the way that you can know is we think that our job in life is to make things as comfortable as possible to avoid any type of persecution and that death is the worst thing that can befall us. From a biblical perspective, that is completely inaccurate. From a biblical perspective, it's completely flip-flopped. For example, death and persecution may be the most valuable thing you can bring to God. I'll give you a challenge. Let's say that I told you your death will be more valuable than you continuing to live from this point forward. The best gift you can give God is to die for his name or die now. You okay with that? What if I told you that the life that you live is not nearly as valuable to God as a life that you would live under intense persecution? And so the greater the persecution that comes upon you, the greater gift you bring to God. Are you willing to swallow those pills as bitter as they are? Are you really measuring value in life based on how it's going for you or based on what you're bringing to him? For most of us, we want our lives to go very well. And if we have any extra time, it'd be great if God was glorified. Something's wrong with that. So let me ask you again, if the greatest thing you can do for God is to die for his name right now, would you? The fill in the blank in front of you is this. At some point, we must own our life is not our own. At some point, we must own, deep down within us, we must buy into the concept that our lives are not our own. They were purchased by Jesus Christ. And they are His for His design, purposes, and will. It is not all about us. It is all about Him. Today, there will be both challenge to live and complicated passages. So, wow, what a rough weekend to go to church. But you know what? It's going to be a great day because I need church this weekend. I know that you need the Word of God this weekend. 
So let's dive into it. First Peter chapter three. Could you turn with me? First Peter chapter three, verse eight. It is page 858 and the Bible's handed to you. 858. If you need to find that, it's pretty far to the right in your Bibles if you're looking for it. First Peter chapter three, we're just going to read eight and nine and then we'll pray for the word. Peter says this. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are here to serve you. I was praying on the way, Lord, here that you would give me the strength to continue to serve in an extreme capacity. And yet, Lord, I serve on the outside and I wonder how much of my internal life is given up for you and for others. I wonder whether or not, Lord, I still have, am on the throne of my own life and how much I have given to you. Lord, may you teach us the concept of true surrender. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now Peter begins this passage with a very stereotypical pastor way of doing it. He says the word finally way before he's ever really going to close. Now, that is a gift that we all possess, which we go in conclusion and then go on for another half hour. So... As with all preachers, he kind of lays it out as if everyone's going to buy into it. But we all know that the book's not done. You can actually look and see there's more chapters to go. Finally, he says, all of you, that means no one's excluded. Everyone pay attention to it. Finally, all of you in the body of Christ live in harmony with one another. That means to go alongside, to be like-minded. Do you think that we think the same? Be like-minded, be of the same heart, be tracking together. One of the great unfortunate realizations that I came to as I was pastoring early on was that most people come to church merely to be reaffirmed what they already believe. I assume that people came to church to learn. Boy, was I mistaken. People come to church to hear that they're right. So the more I teach and talk about things that you already believe, you go, man, that's a good preacher. The minute I disagree with you, you say one of two things. Either he didn't really mean that, or you know what? Everybody's wrong sometimes. Are we like-minded? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe if we could really pull everybody, because every once in a while, I start dialoguing with somebody that's been in the church for three, four years, and they'll say something that is so incredibly contrary to what I've been teaching. And I'm thinking, wait a second, what have you, what rock you've been hiding under? How in the world did you think that that's cool? That's okay. Are we really tracking together? Do we come to church to come together and learn the word of God? Or are we still coming to just feel better about ourselves? Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, 
love as brothers, be compassionate. All those are about loving deeply from the very core of your being. Do you feel anything for the rest of us? I mean, you're busy, I'm busy. Y'all might feel something for me because I get a chance to talk to you a little bit more. Do you feel anything when the prayer requests come across your desk on the prayer chain? Do you feel anything? I mean, I understand that in this day and age, it's very hard to feel stuff because our, man, we are so calloused. We are bombarded by bad news all the time. So quite frankly, it's hard to be jarred by something. If you find out somebody has cancer, it's not like you haven't heard that on the news about 8,000 times. So I understand it's hard to get moved, but as much as you're moved for a family member, are you moved for us? Does it, does it matter to you? If one of us loses our jobs, is that merely a fact or is it personal? We have to intertwine our hearts. However that means for you, however you're going to do that, I don't know. But you have to laugh when we laugh and cry when we cry. That's what we do. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate, and be humble. In my opinion, humility is not something you try to do. It's something you own. And here's what I mean. If you're trying to be humble by saying, man, I really got to come up with some better responses when people say something about me. If that's really your method of being humble, which is, wow, when somebody says, you're an incredible preacher, I'm supposed to say, and then you start running down the list. Oh, you know what? It's completely the, it's all about God, right? If I'm trying to work out all my answers to sound humble, I'm not humble. Humility is something you own for two primary reasons. Number one, because you're wise enough to realize your own weakness. That you realize if God pulled the plug on you, you're done. I mean, ultimately, he's giving you every breath. Ultimately, he's giving you the ability to have a clear mind. He's giving you the ability to do the job that you're doing that you seem to be so proud of. He is giving you all the gifts and talents that he gave you. At any moment, if he pulls his hand off you, you fall down. So first of all, it's just grasping that concept. So what in the world are you cocky about? If he simply could unplug that, I'm not so sure that the power is being generated internally. The second concept that we have to own is that you are not ultimately being matched up against another human being. You may feel good about yourself because you're the best one in this room. The problem is that's not the standard. The standard is actually the sinless son of God. So what are you arrogant about again? If you're really being matched up against Jesus Christ, who does everything right, never messes up, and does it to the highest degree why do you feel so amazing about yourself? I'm not saying that you need to feel horrible about yourself. I'm saying, why is there any room to put down other people? You're not being matched against them. The gap between you and Jesus is so incredible, it doesn't even make sense. So humility is much more wisdom and getting it than just trying to do something. He said, 
Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate, and be humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Ah, that doesn't just mean in the moment. That means afterwards. Once you've marked them out as an enemy, continue to seek their best. It says, but you are to respond with blessing. That word blessing in Greek is where we get the word eulogize. Kind of weird. What is it to eulogize someone? It means to speak well of them. So that means that if someone insults you or someone is rude to you, not only do you seek their best, but you actually go on a PR campaign to making sure their reputation is not destroyed in that process. You actually speak well of them where you can in all honesty. Because to this, you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. What type of blessing would we receive? Well, I believe that God flat out takes his kids aside, realizes as if we're playing on the playground and that one kid just accidentally hit us in the mouth when they were trying to get past us to get on the monkey bars. That as a parent, he's sitting off on the side, sees that happen, saw us back off and let them go. And then we told them, man, you do the monkey bars really good. He takes us aside as a parent and says, hey, I saw everything that happened. I totally appreciate that. You know what? I saw how you handled it. That's pretty awesome. I'm really proud of you. And you know what? I know he was rude. I'll take care of it. I mean, really, that's what's going on. It says, for, and he quotes Psalm 34, whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. Do you have lips of deceitful speech? Are you a manipulator? Right? You always twist things to try to get everything your way. Do you do that? You know, it's funny because I've always been very vehemently against this concept of overt lying. I can't stand it. I don't really understand it. First of all, I'd be a horrible criminal because I'm not very good at that kind of stuff. Right? You know, a lot of people would go in and they'd steal. I, I could never steal something because I would be afraid I would get caught. And then I'd feel stupid when I got caught. Because then they'd go, are you stealing? I'd be like, yeah. Now I feel dumb. So I was like, eh, I can't be a criminal. I better be a pastor. Right? <laughs> but I've always been very proud of the fact that I don't lie. As a matter of fact, I go to extreme lengths not to lie. So don't ever ask me if your outfit looks cute. Now, I always think, well, that makes me a completely honest guy, and I must be a super guy because I'm, I never lie to anybody. And then I realize I spend an awful lot of time lying by omission. Anybody got this one down? This is a great trick. People think one thing, they're heading down a track, you just don't get in the way. You just let them keep thinking that. Now, it's wrong. You know it's wrong. But you just let them keep going, and it's what you don't say, right? Oh, you can manipulate people without saying a word. You just don't say a word. You don't correct what's really happening. You just keep letting them think the wrong thing. And I realize, wait a second, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in me. Even though my lips may not be deceitful, isn't my heart deceitful? 
And isn't that what matters more? It says, Whoever would love life and seek good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good, and he must seek peace and pursue it. The Bible says, insofar as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. Meaning, of course, there's some people you're not going to be at peace with, but it better not be because of you. You must go out of your way to be a peacemaker. Do you have a lot of strife in your life? If so, why? And is your side of the ledger clear? If God was completely to block them out and look only at your actions, let's say a camera was turned only on your face during an argument. You don't get to see what the other person's instigating. You just see your own reaction. How does that look? As much as possible, that depends on you, be at peace with everyone. Be a peacemaker. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, those that do right, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. You don't want God's face against you. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to to do good? Now, that's a rhetorical question, meaning, well, not many people. No one, I mean, if you're really eager, and the word eager is zealous, if you're a zealot, With all your heart to do good, most people are cool with you. Most people like good people. But what happens if they don't like the Christian thing? What happens if they don't like the fact that you're trying to live at a different standard because that makes them feel weird about themselves? What are you going to do if they start seeking your harm because you're trying to be good? What if that begins to bend your mind and they begin at work to persecute you and to make fun of you and to destroy you because you don't party like they party? What if at school you're hanging around with friends and they begin to mess with you or distance themselves from you or to talk about you behind your back because you believe in the imaginary Jesus? What would happen there? You're eager to do good. Most people aren't going to mess with you, but some people will. What about those people? What about those situations? Well, he quotes Isaiah 59. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. That word means highly privileged, fulfilled, happy. Then he quotes Isaiah 8:12. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened, but in your hearts set apart Christ as Lord. Now that's a quantum shift in thinking. What is he saying? He's saying you have to have a different standard for living. Different things need to matter to you. And you need to make Jesus Christ your top priority. He has to be the king of your life. If he is totally, then the enemy has no access to mess with you. Why? William Barclay in one of his commentaries said this, and I paraphrase, the more we love this world, the more easily we are hurt by the enemy because it can only attack what's here. Possessions, ease, comfort but if we love god most and value him most we are impenetrable here's how it works practically if satan wants to mess with you and attack you he can only really touch your stuff everybody remember the whole job scenario 
He can really only touch your stuff. He can really only touch the world stuff. So let's say he wants to create anxiety in you. Let's say for some weird purpose, he's just trying to demoralize you. And so he threatens your job. You start freaking out. I'm going to lose my job. If your true concern is, how will I provide for my family for the very basic necessities, I understand that. If your fear is, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to sell all my stuff, I'm going to have to downsize in my home, it's going to be embarrassing, I won't be able to do all the things my friends do, I'm going to have to change my standard of living, and all that consumes you. Because it messes with your life and ease and comfort, then we have a problem. Why do I use that scenario? Because that's the stuff that freaks me out. I don't think that I ultimately believe that my family will go destitute. Because I believe that if I lost this job, and there are not a lot of jobs out there, but I do know that my heart is such that I will do any job. And I will try to work at it as hard as I can. I don't care what I have to say for a job in terms of paper or plastic. Do you want fries with that? None of that bothers me. I will do any job. What I tend to stress over is what it would take to get there and what I would lose. I don't think I like that. I don't think I like the idea of overhauling my life. That's very uncomfortable to me. But doesn't that make me vulnerable? If truly I only focused on what God cared about, what in the world could the enemy do to me? If I really only cared about maximizing his glory, if I really only cared about loving people, there's no way Satan can mess with me. What has he got? Nothing. He can't touch that stuff. That's God's stuff. Ah, It says, always be prepared, verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. There's two fancy words in there. One, it says, always be prepared to give a logos. Where have you ever heard that phrase before? In the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. John 1.1. 1, 1. Verse 14, and that word became flesh and dwelt among us. The logos is the word, Jesus. But here that same phrase is used. Always be prepared to give a logos and a reason. The word reason is the word in Greek that we get apology from. And it's the word for apologetics, if you've ever heard that phrase in the church. It means a legal defense. Always be prepared to lay out for someone that asks you, notice that, if they ask you and say, what's this whole Christian thing about? So what are you doing? Really? You're in this big phase. Ooh, I'm a Christian now. All right. What does that mean? All right. So now you're into it. So you believe that this Jesus Santa Claus guy, right? So he died for the sins of the world. All right. So tell me about it. Is that legit? It says always be prepared you're probably not going to prepare right in the moment. You have about 30 seconds to respond. You're probably not going to know where the scripture verses are. You're probably not going to know what things to say. So you might want to practice on the off time. Remember, the only reason that 
that David was very easily able to slam Goliath in the head with a sling is that he spent a lot of time bored out of his mind and hitting beer cans off a rock. Probably not beer cans, but you know what I mean. You practice on the off times, so you're ready in the game. Always be prepared to give a reason. Are you prepared? And if not, why? You let so many conversations go by because you're freaked out that you're not going to have the answers. Why don't you have the answers? Oh, I'm kind of busy. And it, really? This is kind of important. Why don't you have the answers? You've been in church here for how long? Literally, I'm shoving scripture down your throat, right? Every week. How do you not know this? And here's the ultimate bottom line. First of all, if you've ever been to church once, you probably know more than the person that's asking you. Number two, the best response you have, you already have in your back pocket. What's the best response to anyone who asks you? Your testimony. Oh, that's weird. No one knows that better than you. As a matter of fact, you lived it and you can actually share that in a very regular way without having to know any particular scripture or where it comes from. So you always are ready, far more ready than you realize. Why don't we share that? Oh, because they're going to ask us something we don't know. Of course they're going to ask you something you don't know. So what? Your response is, I don't know, I'll get back to you. That wasn't that hard. It's all right. I don't know, maybe I'll ask my pastor, maybe I'll ask one of the guys at church, maybe I'll ask one of the ladies in my Bible study. I'll figure it out for you. But I don't have it right now. How cool would it be if you literally responded with a, gosh, I, I don't know, I'm not 100% on this whole Christianity thing, but man, everything I look at, it looks completely legitimate. And I'm all in. I mean, I can't tell you for sure anything, but I can tell you where I'm going. How cool is that? What a great response. It says, but when you respond, do this with gentleness, not forcefulness, and respect, not arrogance. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Lock it in, do it right, because when they mess with you, eventually it's going to come clear that they don't know what they're talking about. It is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Well, that's pretty obvious. Verse 18. For Christ died for sins once for all. That is a biblical basic doctrine. You've got to lock that one down. How many times did Christ die? Once for how much sin? All. Okay, great. Fantastic. Lock those in. Jesus Christ died once for all. I mean, we can go through Hebrews and it says that every year the Jews had to bring sacrificial animals to God, but it never fully covered their sin. But our high priest, Jesus Christ, laid down as a sacrifice and died once for all, so there's no more sacrifice needed. I mean, we can go through all the different scenarios, but really, once for all sounds awesome. Let's just lock that one down. Jesus Christ died for sins once for all. What about the sin that you're going to do in three weeks? I think all means all. There you go. For Christ died for sins once for all. By the way, I schedule out my sin three weeks in advance. No, I don't. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm busy. I'm sinning right now. Thank you. <laughs> 
For Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous for the unrighteous. That means the perfect sinless lamb for a bunch of sinners. That's what it means. How unfair is that? Why did he do it? To bring you to God. Now, this is very, very cool. There's a Jewish view of this about bringing a priest that's acceptable to God. But then there's a Greek view, and I think this is very cool. He uses a word that is actually an official title that someone gets to do for a job. And what it is, is you're the guy or girl who gets to decide who gets to see the king and not. You're the one who has access to the king and you dictate. When someone comes in, they said, yes, I'd like to speak to the king. You have to say, hold on a second. You go back, consider who they are. Talk a little bit to the king. You're the one that gets to decide whether they get to go in or not. That word is right here. The whole purpose of Jesus Christ dying was to give you access to the father. It wasn't for nothing. It wasn't on accident. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the spirit. Now that can either mean by the Holy Spirit or alive in his spirit. I leave that one up to you. But now it gets weird. There are two really heavy pieces to this. This is the first one. Through whom also he, meaning Jesus, went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. What? What are you talking about? Maybe if we read it again, it'll be clear. Through whom also he went, and he preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Nope, no help. Anybody know what we're talking about? He mentions Noah. Anybody know the Noah story? I mean, we all know the ark story, right? The whole, hey, build an ark out of wood, right? It was go for Barky, Barky, right? Remember that? When you were little? You had to remember? Okay, that's a good song. All right. Uh, But do you know why? It says a bunch of fascinating things. In Genesis chapter 6, it says the sons of God, whoever in the world they are, they're a key piece to the story. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. God gets irritated, says, I will not contend with man forever. His numbers will now be 120 years. That's intriguing because we know that Noah was 500 years old when this whole thing started to go down. And then it says, out of nowhere, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days when sons of God went to daughters of men and had children by them and out came the heroes of old of renown. What? What are we talking about? Then it says, God saw the intense wickedness of man that every inclination of their hearts was only evil all the time. His heart was filled with pain, and he says, I'm going to kill them all. But he looks down, sees Noah. Noah is described as righteous, blameless, and the man who walked with God. He said, I want you to build a boat, because I'm going to save you through this. And there was a big, huge flood. Not only did it rain for 40 days and 40 nights where this massive cloud layer pours down, but there was an eruption of water from underneath and the whole earth is flooded and everybody dies except for eight people. Who are the eight people? Noah, his wife, his three sons and their wives. Okay. That's the story. 
Now, let's read it again. Maybe this will be easier. Through whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who disobeyed long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Nope, still no help. How long did it take for the ark to be built? 120 years. What did Noah do during that time besides build a boat? He preached a lot. He preached in a very, very persecuted state. That's why we're talking about Noah. Because the early church was being persecuted, Noah spoke, and nobody listened to him. Talk about a really ineffective preacher. He basically won no one over. All right. So, two common views of what happened. God got so mad because the world became so wicked because the sons of God came to the daughters of men. What does that mean? Well, your two views. Men of royalty took any women they wished in a manner that displeased God. That's your first option. Number two, angels became fallen angels and became interconnected with women that are human and created a really messed up gene pool. So which one is your option? Both of them are pretty weird, don't you think? And you go, well, it's, it's probably nothing that weird. Peter talks about it again. Second Peter chapter two, verse four, for God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness and seven others, verse nine, if this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. It seems that Peter is really on this fallen angels kick. It seems that he keeps linking fallen angels to Noah and the flood. It's weird because Jude does the same thing. Jude 6. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. Okay, there's a lot of talk about angels being put in jail. Where's that? Anybody know the Apostles' Creed? Pretty famous document. In there, it's wrong. Now, of course, that's in the past, I would have got killed for saying that. But you don't even know the Apostles' Creed, so it doesn't matter. Now, in the Apostles' Creed, it says that Jesus Christ descended into hell. That is incorrect. It's quoting a passage improperly. The Bible does not say that Jesus descended to hell, it says that Jesus descended to Hades. That's different. Now, when he died on the cross, that was on a Friday. He rose again on Sunday. What in the world was he doing on Saturday? Resting. No. What was he doing on Saturday? Well, it doesn't mean that we suddenly need time, like he needs 24 hours to get the job done. But something occurred during that time, in my opinion. So what we have now is the idea that Jesus went somewhere. When he died, he went to the grave. In the Old Testament, the grave is called Sheol. In the New Testament, the grave is called Hades. As a matter of fact, in the Old Testament view, people didn't go immediately to heaven. King David didn't believe he was going to go to heaven when he died. Job did not believe he was going to heaven when he died. Abraham did not believe that he was going to heaven when he died. Where did they believe they were going? They were going to the place of the dead, a shadowy world known as Sheol. There was a good side to it and a bad side to it. That got a little bit more focused as it went on. But the old patriarchs did not 
believed they would instantly be in the presence of God. They believed that there was an intermediate world. Are they right? No, it's what they believed. Seems to be that they were accurate. What's intriguing is that after Jesus died as an Old Testament Jew, as he died for the sins of the world, he too was to go to Hades. For what purpose? Well, because he was dead. You go, Jesus didn't really go there. Interesting, Acts 2.27, quoted about Jesus, you will not abandon me in Hades. Oh, I guess he did go there. Revelation 1.18, we studied this last year. Jesus said, I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys to death and Hades. So clearly, he's been there. Now, what did he go down there to do? What was the purpose? Well, we have six options. <laughs> I will not share all six with you due to time. However, I will share with you what I think happened. And then if you want to know all six options, I will certainly give them to you. Here's what I believe happened. As Jesus died on the cross, he went down into the grave. In the grave, there are two locations. One is called paradise. On one side, there's a chasm that's inseparable between them. How do we know that? Because Jesus told a parable about it in Luke 18. The rich man and Lazarus parable. On the other side, it was a place of torment that we refer to as hell. Is hell permanent? There's a lot of bogus stuff about hell. Everyone thinks that Satan is in hell. Do you all realize the devil's not in hell? The devil's here. Not necessarily a bridgeway, but what I'm saying, what I'm saying is he's in the world, okay? That would be awkward. <laughs> the devil's here. He's not in hell. As a matter of fact, the angels don't like prison. I don't know if you realize that hell is a prison. You don't want to go to prison. You don't hang out in prison. There's only few, there's only some angels that are in prison. And they were the ones that messed up a long time ago during this Noah scenario. So who in the world is in hell? It's the wicked. They are being put into hell. That's on one side. In Sheol, there's two sides, right? Well, what happened? When Jesus died, he descended down into this realm, it says, to preach. Did you see that in the Bible? That's a bad translation. Why? Because when you think of preach, what do you think of? The gospel. So a lot of people think, well, he gave everyone a second chance at salvation. All right, so you blew it in the past. I'm Jesus. Hello, I died for your sins. Do you want to go with me? That is not what he did. The word, if that was the case, would have been the word for evangelize. That is an incorrect word. The word here is to proclaim something. What did he do? He went down and said, I win. Kids, come with me. Everyone on the side of paradise. How do we know that the place is called paradise? Because there's a guy hanging next to Jesus. Y'all remember that? The thief on the cross. He said, today you will be with me in. Oh, I guess Jesus was going to paradise, huh? And so was that guy. But they weren't going to hang out in paradise. As a matter of fact, it says in Ephesians, quoting Psalms, that he led captives in his train as he ascended to the right hand of the Father. So at some point, he took all his kids to God. He took them to the Father. And that good side of Sheol is done away with. For all of us in this world, for anyone after the cross, there is two locations to go when you die. The presence of God. Hell. That's why we have that view now. 
But hell is not permanent, for it will be thrown in the lake of fire. That's the eternal destination. You either have lake of fire or you have the presence of God. All right, does that all make sense? No, probably not, but we have to move on. Here we go. It says in the ark, going back to this Noah story, in the ark... Only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Well, what? First of all, how in the world does a flood have anything to do with baptism? Isn't that just a preacher tangent? Right? Where Peter was like, oh, water. Yeah, that reminds me. We've got to talk about baptism. And then he says, baptism saves you. We don't teach that in this church. Where did that come from? Baptism saves you. What are you talking about? It says, it clarifies, not the removal of dirt from the body, meaning not the physical act, not the whole going under the water thing, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. How are we saved? By faith alone. Yeah? We're saved by the faith in Jesus Christ. We're not saved by baptism. So what is baptism for? It says here that it's a pledge of a good conscience before God. What does that mean? It means it has a lot to do with your transformation. Why? Because it uses a Greek term that is a legal term. The legal term states that if you were presented with a contract... You had to sign and verbally say, I agree to the terms of the contract. If you do not, it is not valid. Let's make it more modern. You know when you try to download something online and the little agree, disagree button comes up? Okay, same thing. You click on that one, then you can move forward. Baptism is like that contract of where you visibly, verbally say before the world, I'm on Jesus' team. I'm all in. I have the faith in my heart. I'm bringing faith to the water. It's not meeting me there. I'm not saved by the water. I have a new life in Jesus Christ. I would like to verbally testify before all of you that I am a son of God. And we walk into that water. We go down in immersion just like Jesus Christ went down into the grave and rose again as a picture that locks it in our minds of what in the world just happened. We come out of that water and we step out having signed that contract and said, I'm all in. Does that make a little bit clearer? It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand. With angels, authorities, and powers and submission to him. Go to chapter 4, verse 12. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, the burning that is to come. As though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. What did he just say? He said, be happy about persecution. Why? Two reasons. Number one, we should be happy that we're even in the same sentence as Jesus Christ. Literally, there's not a lot of stuff you can do that demonstrates you are absolutely a believer in Jesus Christ in the world's eyes. Because a lot of people do a lot of things for mixed motives. But when you are being persecuted for having the name of Jesus attached to you, it's pretty darn clear whose side you're on. 
And how cool is it to finally be named as a Christian legitimately in the eyes of the world? That's one thing you should be happy about. The second thing is when Jesus comes in all of his glory in his second coming, you get to shout out, I'm on his team. While the whole rest of the world recognizes that it was not like they saw it. He again goes on. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. The only thing we can think of, we as if I'm one of the scholars, the only thing they can think of is the Shekinah glory of God. You remember the glow on Moses' face? Do you remember the cloud that would descend on the tent of meeting and at Mount Sinai when you knew God was there? It says when we get persecuted, that glow comes on us. And we begin to emanate that God is present. If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler, someone messing in other people's business. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. Praise God that you bear that name. Okay. I want you to back up for a second and remember who who wrote this letter. Who wrote it? Peter. Did he ever have a time when he was ashamed of Jesus Christ? Now let's consider that phrase again. Do not be ashamed of the name of Jesus Christ. You should be proud to bear that name. You think he has a right to say that? How many times do you think he rethought that moment in the garden when Jesus Christ was being tortured and on trial? And they came up to him and asked him three separate times. You know this guy? No idea. Jesus, you know his name? Never heard of him. You follower Jesus? Absolutely not. How many times do you think he replayed that scenario? What, every day of his life? Don't you believe that in his heart he would have said if he was verbally there, visually there in front of this church, don't you ever do that. I did that and I've never lived it down. I die every day because I know what I did. I abandoned my best friend. I abandoned my Lord. I abandoned my Savior. They asked me. They gave me three separate chances. I did nothing. As a matter of fact, I went out of my way to shout down curses so they would never believe that I was one of his. I hate myself for it. Don't you ever do that. Don't ever be ashamed. I should be proud to honor his name. I should be proud to wear his name. And you should be proud to wear his name. And someday I will stand up for him and I will die for him and I will not back down. Did he have that chance? Tradition says he did. He wasn't about to fail twice. He was crucified upside down. He watched his wife get crucified. And he never shuddered and stopped. He said, not this time. You going to take me out? Do your best. Because I'm one of the kings. For it is time for judgment to begin with the family of God. And if it begins with us, what's going to be the outcome to be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And he quotes Proverbs 11.31. If it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what's going to become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will, they should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. 
He said, if judgment comes down and if God holds us accountable, it's going to be rough on us. But we need to commit ourselves. That word is a legal term in Greek. And it means to give to a close trusted friend your money while you're gone on a trip. And they are bound by honor and their good name to keep it safe. We have a closing challenge for you after the prayer that I'll direct your attention to in a video. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you, Lord, that you would allow us to walk under your banner. That you would allow us to be part of your team. That you would call us sons and daughters of God. May we not shy away, but boldly proclaim that we are one of yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.